0: The views and opinions expressed by guest speakers do not necessarily reflect the views or position of ReadyTech. Hi, welcome to Worked. I'm your host, Mark Washburn, CEO of ReadyTech. Coming up in today's podcast, I'm going to be talking about the search for meaning and purpose and exploring the topic of mental health. This will be a deep dive into some huge topics affecting the future of work. I hope you enjoy the show. So, today's guest to help tackle these important issues is Darren Coppin, founder of Isha House. What can I tell you about Darren Coppin? Well, Darren is one of these rare creatures with both academic and commercial achievement. He has attained both a PhD in behavioral change and an MBA from a prestigious business school. Now, what Darren does is quite unique. He essentially blends the science of data analytics with what could best be called the art of human behavior. To date, over 100,000 people have been through the Isha House programmes. So without further ado, let me introduce Darren. Darren, how are you, my dear fellow?
1: Uh, Nauseatingly good. Thanks, Mark.
0: That is interesting, wonderful to hear. Delighted to have you on. So for full transparency, Darren's business, Isha House, joined ReadyTech a couple of years back and we work together. Now, you've been out a lot recently. You've been out with clients, you've been speaking at conferences, you've been researching a lot. I also understand that you've taken up panning for gold. Can you tell me a bit about that?
1: Not really. <laughs> I look for nuggets, golden nuggets in everything. But I also have to have a purpose to everything I do as well. So if I just <laughs> want to hang around in the wild and walk around, it's good to, uh, to have something to do there.
0: That's a good setup for today. Let's hope there'll be a few golden nuggets today. Have you seen the price of gold recently?
1: It's skyrocketed.
0: Yeah, since you got involved. <laughs> So uh, this is actually the longest time I've spent with you for a while. Usually I'd probably prefer to uh, be partaking in a glass of wine if we were going into such a topic as the meaning of life.
1: Yeah, indeed. Vodka is probably more helpful.
0: Maybe we can start by you telling us a bit about your own story through uh, education and work.
1: Yes, I started as managing director of a a company in Britain uh, that was an education, vocational education and employment firm. Uh, we grew it by chasing government funding to about 150 staff, and then I was lucky enough to sell that business, and basically I had the money to spend two years not having to work full-time, and I wanted to spend that time studying all the things that had driven me insane about the industry of getting people into work, helping people complete vocational qualifications, uh, why was there such high staff turnover in a pretty cushy job, you'd think. Um, case management and looking after job seekers and luckily I'd fallen in with a a, a gentleman that had become Minister for Welfare Reform, uh, Lord Freud and he referred me to a couple of books that really got me started in psychology deeply and so when I moved to Australia I started a PhD on behavioural change and um, that's really taken off, there was some really low hanging fruit to to help people and move them forward so it's been an interesting journey sounds to me like uh,
0: it was uh, frustration was the mother of invention in this case.
1: Yeah, indeed. And the issue is we all have this in the sectors and the jobs and the industries we work in. Um, these things that just don't seem to make sense, but we've just got to get on with work. We don't have time to sit back, think about them, try and change things or research them. But I had that luxury of a little bit of time uh, so I can go away. And, and it just really was remarkable. The world we live in today where you can do academic research and uh, and study millions of data points it uh, makes it so easy to come across what works and where it works and how to improve things in your sector. But the bottom line is having that time to be able to spend doing that.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it was a great blessing. We're going to talk about meaning and purpose today. It sounds like that's also been part of your own journey that you've uh, found that within some of your work.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's purposeful. Helping job seekers realise their own potential, helping students do exactly the same. I wouldn't say I've found the meaning of life, but I definitely know where to look a bit better now.
0: And uh, if I may brag about you a little bit more. (laughs) You uh, Tell us about your PhD. It sounds like you're on track to be Dr. Darren Copin very soon.
1: Yes, PhD all written and passed, about 110,000 words of it that only my mum will read probably. But there were some really interesting things that we were able to uncover, really leap out and really help the sector uh, make a leap forward. It turns out that people have discrete stages of commitment to things, getting a job, completing a course. And if you don't time what you say to that person, with their specific stage of commitment or stage of change, then you're not only not engaging with them, you're alienating them. So you're having the opposite effect that you're trying to uh, achieve. And the great thing with this PhD is it's really applied behavioural science. There were twenty to 30,000 participants in our studies in the real world. We also found things like learned helplessness uh, applies to job seekers. So those dull bludgers, as a minister in a right wing might call it, aren't actually manipulating the system, they're behaving in exactly the same way the entire animal kingdom does in response to having repeated adversity over which you seem to have no control. And that gives us massive clues on what to do to engage with people and move them forward in the way that they want to move forward. So it sounds like you go deep
0: into evolutionary uh, journey as humans to understand why we might behave in certain ways.
1: Yeah, that's probably my favourite Set of books, favorite uh, research topic is evolutionary psychology, and it's just logic really. Um, Homo sapiens has only been around for 200,000 years, and for 200 years we've lived and worked in the ways we do now. You know, that's, that's less than 2% of our human history. So, what we're instinctively responding to current situations is based upon how we evolved as a species.
0: So, uh, for the un- uninitiated, can you just explain a bit more about this field of behavioural science?
1: Yeah, it's a bit of a buzzword, and it's really been around for, for decades. But behavioural science deals with understanding any animal, but in particular humans. Uh, it's about minimising risk, maximising engagement with individuals, and it encompasses things that you already mentioned, evolutionary psychology, psychology, cognitive science, but increasingly physiological things, biology, neuroscience. And then of course we've got data vast tracts of data now that we can we can call upon um, to give us truth and evidence and and get rid of conventional wis- wisdom and opinion uh, which often used to dictate policy
0: so uh, effectively uh, what it seems to me is you've combined sort of an understanding of what makes people tick as well as our inherent biases as well as the use of uh, such uh, areas as, uh, as nudge or positive psychology to help people make better decisions?
1: Yeah, and the key word you're using there is positive. It might be known as manipulative or, or feared as using nudge and behavioural science. Um, positive is the, is the real focus on what I do and, and pretty much everyone in the field that I know does.
0: Yeah, because that's interesting because although it is a nascent field in many ways, Uh, The application of psychology, I guess, has been around for a long time in the business world. I think of marketing tactics uh, when I think about that. Also, I'm aware that the the British government has actually had a behavioural science team in place for a long time, helping them to positively impact the British public.
1: Yep, the behavioural insights team formed in the Treasury in 2010, really influenced by Thaler and Sunstein's book, Nudge. Um, And that was really itself also influenced by a guy called James Wilkes. Um, in 1995 which was really about big changes really quite easy if you find the small things to do to influence it so the Australian government have their own beta team now from right. uh, 2015 onwards so it's really called on and what's beautiful is it's it's called on with government departments and hallowed institutions like Harvard to try and do the right thing by people.
0: An example I, I came across is uh is as humans, we're sort of wired to stick to the default option, right, is, is probably a practical example. So for example, if we had a form that had a default option on, for example, to to choose to take a certain pension fund, uh, we're going to be more likely to take that option. Is that the type of thing that we're talking about here?
1: Yeah, spot on. It's, it's um, grappling with our biases. So default option is really um, it's not a human thing, it's it's a safety thing. Stick with what you know, the better the devil you know. But all animals do this as well. Uh, that's why elephants follow the same trails to water holes and what have you. And there are over 180 um, cognitive biases, which you can really boil down to four key ones um, that drive human behaviours. First of all, we're, we do whatever's easiest. And I'll, I'll probably elaborate on some examples of that later. Uh, But not because we're lazy, because uh, we consume less calories by doing something more easily. We're more likely to survive. So that goes back to your original point on, you know, this has been bred into us. We're social animals. Everything we do is to try and impress others or avoid embarrassment, which I'm failing to do right now. Um, (laughs) Self-control is the third of the four key principles. We have very little self-control, self-regulation. And yet the fourth one is we crave control and we crave autonomy. And I think that's really where the, where the impact of behavioural science is now. We have more control over our lives now than we probably ever have to a large extent. And the government cannot force us to do things like they would have done in the past. So they might have forced us into conscription, fostering children. But now um, they've got to nudge us. They've got to make us feel like we've got a choice. So we have all these nudges like a default option on donor cards by switching the default that you are a donor unless you opt out you always have that choice that option to opt out but it's doing it in the right way and nudge has been around forever for centuries you know the white lines in the middle of the road is a nudge is that evil or is that manipulative no it's just improving the safety of everybody
0: i was i was going to say it's quite scary if it falls into the wrong hands i suppose you know how how do you think about the ethics in this field
1: yeah, ethics are um, absolutely crucial. And ethics really comes into the meaning and purpose conversation we're going to have as well. Again, it comes down to we crave this autonomy. For example, one of the earliest marketing techniques that uses nudge is having fruit and veg at the start of a supermarket. It makes no sense to have it there, because that means your bananas and plums are at the bottom of the the uh um are the favourite fruit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But they'll get crushed by the time you've gone around. But what it does is instill a sense of that supermarket is healthy. You've bought something healthy, so then you can treat yourself further around the line. And it's a fresh place. It's great. You're, you're buying good quality produce. So it's a really obvious nudge. So, yes, there are ethics there, but we've still got control. This is why I'm, I'm so excited to work with government departments and projects, because it's genuinely and generally at the best interests of the citizen and improving their lives.
0: Now, that was a lovely segue there you mentioned to get into the, the main topic today. I think when we're talking about human behaviour, this could go a million ways, but uh, we really wanted to hone in today on this area, really important for the future of work, which is this sort of search for meaning and, and purpose, and also the connection to mental health.
1: Do you think people are searching for more meaning and purpose today? They're definitely searching more, I'd I'd suggest. It's not that we need it anymore, but in the past it's been provided much more by pretty much any religion you can talk about. You don't have to worry about meaning and purpose and and transcendence and an afterlife. It's taken care for you. Um, There's so many quotes in the Bible, in the Quran, in Sanskrit writings that your purpose is to serve God and to do right by him and by others. And there you go. You're sorted. And you don't have to worry about making a difference in life because it's all about the afterlife. There's, there's there's life after death. So that makes everything purposeful in what you're doing today so you've got the payoff of a better afterlife. Now we're in a more secular society, so there is this uh, existential vacuum.
0: You mentioned the secular society. I think it's perhaps also not just the institution of church but also family, community. There's less trust in government now there's less trust in democracy, maybe, than we had before. Uh, and uh, do you think all that goes to a change in the way that we have a framework around a purpose?
1: Yeah, hugely. Uh, if you have a look at what derives well-being and life satisfaction, meaning and purpose are usually one of the key elements, social relationships. But the key thing that we can find with studies about the purpose of purpose um, is that there's an outward-looking aspect to the individual. Uh, they're not all about themselves it's about serving a community but there are downsides to that there's there's been a huge erosion of the strength of family and community um, and you know smaller society but there's been a massive expansion of the state and corporations controlling our lives which sounds awful but actually if you look at it it's had a massive benefit to us as individuals in terms of health wealth and security if your cousin stole something from somebody, another family, then you, for most of human history, were quite within your rights to punish the cousin of the offending person. Women were used as property and traded um, and money exchanged, and that was the power of the family and the community, and that's been taken away by police and and state-controlled law. So actually, it sounds a really negative thing, but there's been enormous advantages to this.
0: And to extend it further, do you think that, a lack of purpose is leading to more mental health issues today, such as anxiety, stress and depression?
1: Yep, definitely. There's A lack of purpose does lead to this vacuum in your life. What's the point? How many examples do we have that people that seem to have everything, success, fame, and yet they've got this vacuum where everything seems meaningless? So there's a there's a huge gap there. But it's been put forward that a lot of this reason is because of people having more time to... Consider a navel gaze and ponder. We're not spending our whole time hunting, gathering and worrying about life or death or saber-toothed tigers in bushes. But actually, the opposite's really true. That makes a lot of sense, that argument. We've got more time, so we mull over things. It's the curse of being human and conscious, is that we turn things over and over in our brain a lot. But studies of pretty much every indigenous society show that they work for 18 to 30 hours a week. So the Kung Bushman is, is where I get that quote from. And that includes the commuting to hunting and gathering areas and, and getting water.
0: I understand the traffic's not as bad.
1: <laughs> no, indeed not. A couple of elephants in the way. It's, if we had working weeks that were 18 hours, including the commute, then life would be wonderful, it seems. You know, we'd have an enormous amount more time. And there's a famous quote, um, an anthropological study of the Hadza people in, in the uh, East African Rift Valley when the anthropologist said that the, the men there are more interested in chances of, of games of chance than chances of game. They're more interested in playing because they've got more time. So the, the issue today isn't that we have less time, uh, or, or it isn't that we've got more time, you know, to navel gaze. We've got much less time. Every second we have spare, we spend it gazing at our phones, stuck in traffic lights, sitting on the loo. You know, you've got to look at it, and, and it takes an enormous amount of self-discipline to give yourself back some time but you don't even have time to be depressed anymore. Uh, you go to a doctor, uh, you're moaning that a few bad things have happened, you've got a sense of loss, like, Oh go, well, I can fix that for you, you're back to work tomorrow, here's a tablet. Which, from all the studies I've looked at, works in perhaps 16% of, of cases. So... They throw a tablet at you so that you're straight back in. Now, depression is a, is a sense of loss. And this is one of the first books I read on psychology and, and what we're dealing with, behavioral science, which Lord Freud um, suggested to me, the, the evolutionary basis of depression. Everyone needs time to recover from things and, and think about stuff and and to adjust your life after a sense of loss, a loss of status. You might just be embarrassed. A girl blew you out. We might have lost a family member or a job. Or whatever, all indigenous societies still have this time where you can go walk about, or go into a sweat lodge, or take some time. Now we don't have that. You just throw in a tablet and said, "Get on with it and good luck."
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? In some ways, when we have many more of our basic needs covered now, you know, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, most of our needs are met better than before. So it doesn't really make sense that we have this major problem with mental health issues.
1: No, you're absolutely right. If you look at every descriptor of human life, we're, we're pretty much better off. We've got more food, more food than we can deal with. We're producing more food. Uh, we've got more money. Uh, we've got more gadgets. We've got more security, which is one of the key things. The murder rate is, was allegedly about one in between 300 and 3,000 in the 1500s. Now it's one in 100,000 in Western Europe and the United States even. So on every measure, we're better. And yet for the last 15 years, there's been more deaths by suicide than war and violent crime combined. So this doesn't seem to make sense. Why are we so much more depressed? And to bring it back to Maslow, what I described there was the bottom few levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which I learned when I was 15, and it's only about two years ago, it actually became useful. Um, But the bottom layers are all being satisfied. So what is it about our needs that aren't being satisfied that are leading to higher anxiety stress and depression.
0: So research I read recently was actually showing that perhaps mental health has not actually increased but it's been kind of the destigmatization means that you know there's now more awareness so people are not suffering in silence as much. I find that a little hard to believe personally with some of the statistics that we are seeing you know I understand that one in ten Australians are on some form of, of antidepressant and that just blows your mind, right? But, um, you know, perhaps is the great battle of modern times and it uh, seems like we have a long way to go to understand both causation and treatment.
1: Yeah, there you can understand the argument that now we've got words for bipolar, um, anxiety, stress, depression, and you talk to a great grandfather and they say, yeah, I knew this bloke and he just kept to himself and we left himself to himself. Uh, it, it, probably was always around, um, not as many words, but there does seem to be something different now. Um, There does seem to be something in in society where we've lost those social bonds. And it's no irony that the greatest successes of of modern business and the internet are social networks at a time when we're losing social networks, but that has a massive danger. And that takes us to the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the self actualization and doing what you love but it's also an issue of exposure. Um, so when I was a kid, I obviously made a lot of stupid comments at school. I can imagine. Well, it is a stretch, but I'm sure you can. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it would never be plastered all over Snapchat for 3,000 kids to realise and to me, for me to be reminded of it two years later. It would, I would have had the mickey taken out of me or the mockery, uh, as we say in the vernacular here. Um, in at school break time, and then that was that. Whereas this haunts people. But there's also an issue with we used to only compare ourselves with the people in our 30 to 50 person family group for hundreds of thousands of years. And then that got bigger to people in your local town or your county. Um, but now we're compared to something that's going on in Ohio.
0: The Seven billion people, right? Exactly. Yeah. On a global so scale.
1: the feeling of inadequacy is massive. So we we're, we're trying to broadcast our wonderful one percent of our lives on Instagram, but we're being compared to everybody's one percent of their lives and we feel inadequate and that leaves you hollow. And if you do make a little bit of a boo-boo, then it's spread around everywhere. So can you imagine the issues that young people in particular are facing as they come to their um trying to choose a career where you're saying, Oh, this is the most important decision of your life, you bug otherwise You've got to get it right otherwise you've messed your life up um, the pressures combined with those two other things are, uh, are enormous for that age group in particular
0: oh, what you're saying just makes a ton of sense now so just back to the main game in town what we really came to talk about is is meaning and purpose now the first thing i want to ask you about that is are they the same thing
1: no there have often been translations from german or greek where, where you try and encompass the, the, the thing with both meaning and purpose but purpose is just one of three components of meaning.
0: And uh, now I, lo- I know you like to go back to the classics and, and kind of start at the beginning with things with a lot of your work so what can we learn from say the philosophers about meaning and purpose?
1: Well, I'll start with a modern philosopher, if you like, um, a guy called Professor Michael Steger. Um, I bumped into him about 10 days ago in Melbourne, and he's the head of the Center for Meaning and Purpose at Colorado University. And yes, there's a whole center focusing on it. And what's interesting is some of the studies that come out of there and that are quoted there is that when you measure someone's sense of purpose, and they're perhaps in retirement age, the Bottom ten percent of those people that feel that they've got some sort of purpose in life are twice as likely to die as the top ten percent of those that. So purpose purpose is key, but it's only one of the three components of of meaning. The other is identity, who we are and where we fit in the world, and the other one, significance. And this is massive. You can see it everywhere. On the train on the way in today, I must have gone past about three thousand examples of graffiti on walls, on old buildings, and that, some of it very nicely artistic. Um, 90% of it was somebody graffitiing their name, tagging. And these are young people that are just screaming out, I've got some sort of significance in the world. And, and it's at that age where you make that transition from, you know, the world's all about Lego and then music and stuff like that. And then suddenly you're being forced into getting a job, a car, a mortgage, a pension, then you die. And it's that transition period where you've got, I'm important, I'm significant. So there's interesting things I just said there. There's purpose, identity and significance were identified by Professor Steger as the three components of meaning. But you could argue that, yes, Gandhi had that, Dalai Lama, certainly. Someone you know that's a really strong pillar of community might do. Hitler, he had those. So this is where the controversial, yeah, well, he did, you know, he had a purpose, he he knew where he was and where he fitted in the world, and he had significance. So he definitely had meaning. But for meaning to really mean something, there has to be a degree of ethics. And this is where the ancient philosophers kick in, really. So Nietzsche said that heroism, meaning uh, you have to be um, heroic, be bold and dare to do, be different from the rest of society and push forward, don't be afraid to be a leader. Well, Hitler ticks that box still, so that's a bit of a worry. But the one that really kicks in out of the, uh, the four real components that the philosophers have said over the last two millennia is that um, excellence is what Aristotle uh, said was absolutely key. Find out what you're good at and get better at it. Find out what you love, your virtue, your strength, your character excellence, and focus on that and then offer that skill to your community. Now, what's interesting is we often tell children to just be what you want to be, do what you want to do, do what you love, uh, which is actually dangerous, and I can elaborate upon that later because it means what's going to happen to society if everybody does that coming out of school and university today um nobody's going to do any of the jobs that we, we really need but what you can do is apply your strengths and your virtues to a particular role and task and job and get more out of it i know what your key strengths are your character strengths how do you how do you know that unagi i read your mind no mm-hmm. you completed the values in action character oh, strength survey for yeah, yes that was fascinating a good 18 months ago And some of your top strengths, I think, were love, curiosity, forgiveness, hope, social intelligence. I find the last one hard to believe. (laughs) Um, But what's interesting with you, Mark, is you're a leader, but you're not, hey, follow me. You're a leader that says, come with me. You know, come on, because it's the reciprocation. Love isn't about loving. Um, You know, you would have failed as a male escort if that was the case. But love is about that reciprocation with others. So when you... Cook, which is one of your favorite pastimes, it's not because I love to cook and pretend that I'm Jamie Oliver. It's I can't wait to cook this and share it with someone. I can't wait to go to a great restaurant with someone and talk about it and express it and exchange ideas. So you can see how strengths can be played and captured and get you into flow. And nobody's ever going to be really magnificent at something. Have you ever heard that phrase? If you spend 10,000 hours at something, you become a virtuoso. But who's going to spend 10,000 hours at something that they don't like? So you've got to find out what you love, what gets you into flow. So those 10,000 hours pass really quickly. And then you really are a virtuoso with something to offer society.
0: I'd firstly just like to say that I always find out so much about myself when I <laughs> hang out with you. Uh, but those insights were pretty accurate, actually. It's, uh, it's quite scary. And... Similarly to this, and you've probably heard this one before, and I'm researching this before we came on today. I found a quote by a guy called David Viscott. You might have heard of this one. I wouldn't be surprised. And the quote says, the purpose of life is to discover your gift. The work of life is to develop it. And the meaning of life is to give your gift away. Which really, I think, resonates with what you just said. Do you like that
1: one? Yeah, it's brilliant. I find it ironic that it was originally attributed to Picasso and then Shakespeare, but that fellow was the the one we can really pin it on because Picasso and Shakespeare both died relatively rich from not giving it away, but selling their stuff.
0: (laughs) What it also says is there has to be some element of service in there.
1: Yeah, of the four things that philosophers really bring to what is meaning about eradicates Hitler from that list of people that had real meaning in life is altruism I love this from the Scottish philosopher Hume and the whole economic it's called utilitarianism from Stuart Mill and Adam Smith and Bentham is about the most efficient way of doing things is the way that brings most happiness to people doing the right thing is always going to be the thing that's adopted more and more efficient if you make a profit as a business you should reinvest it so that other people get more affluent and pull themselves out of poverty. So that's absolutely um, essential. And discovery was the um, existentialist contribution to this acronym, HEAD, which is heroism, excellence, altruism, and discovery. We're responsible for what we do. And that self-responsibility is massive now, but you've got to realize for most of human history, we haven't had a choice in what we do. Um, We haven't taken responsibility. We do everything in the name of God in the order to please God. So now now we've got that choice and that responsibility, but it weighs heavy on us. I heard this thing, I
0: think it was I was listening to a podcast, I think with Russell Brands. It's slightly more popular podcast than mine, but I'm catching him up. And he found that when you give, it releases some form of chemicals that actually makes you feel good, which I'd imagine is also some sort mm. of evolutionary thing going on there.
1: It's really interesting because actually if we think about living a life with purpose and meaning is it, often it's about trying to capture happiness and life satisfaction, which all that is, is dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin. So it's just a chemical release. So surely now we've found ways of releasing those chemicals. That's it. We're going to be happy. We're going to live satisfied lives. And we're going to have meaning just by popping a pill, which we can do now. But that kind of fills us with horror. And that, that was the basis for the Brave New World book over 100 years ago or about 100 years ago, and it doesn't make sense. There's something missing, and by any measure, so Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize, and he he measured um, having children, uh, you know, the first year or two of having children. It's a bloody nightmare. Uh, You know, there's crap everywhere. There's sick. There's no sleep, everything like that. I'm saying this from the heart because I've got two tiny kids. (laughs) But, so on every measure of life, satisfaction, meaning and purpose, it's a, it's a nightmare. It's the opposite of what you're trying to achieve. But when you ask a parent, what's the meaning of life? What's your purpose? It's my kids. I love it. You know, they're bloody brilliant. So there's something missing there that is really conscious. And it's about that giving away, that nurturing, that unconditional love, that support is massive to us as a species.
0: Now, I want to go back to a word that you used before, which, and that word was flow. And I think that that... That's a, just a really interesting thing to unpack in all this. And I think that you spoke about when I, uh, my favourite thing is cooking. And, and I find when I'm methodically chopping, I just feel so much calmer and I, feel, I, just, I, I just feel happy, right? I find it sometimes when I'm on, on a plane and I'm just uninterrupted that I sort of get into these sort of higher states of, you know, just real concentration. What is happening at that point?
1: Yeah, well, flow is a term coined by Csikszentmihalyi, which really does tie in with that Aristotelian perception of find what you're good at and do more of it. And it turns out when you do more of it, when you're working at something that really plays to your strengths, time just whizzes by, you excel at things. But what needs to be noted here is that app makers, game makers try and get you into a state of flow where you just about achieve something you get satisfied with an achievement a level up then you carry on and you go and go go so it's kind of a good flow and a bad flow the good flow is obviously where you're pushing yourself and it's interesting to note one of the key definitions of flow is where you're challenging yourself it's just within the realms of achievement you're pushing yourself but if it was too easy it would be boring and it's kind of bad flow Um, so it's, it's important to make that distinction but when you get into that flow, it just it's almost meditative. It's a brilliant state to be in, and, and people generally excel. Mm. If you look at the things that you do to get you into flow, whether it be writing a presentation or cooking or painting or, or playing sport, there's always a match with what your core strengths are, your character strengths.
0: So is it possible that when we achieve that state of flow, and you know, I feel that you sort of lose sense of time, don't you? And you sort of lose... Your whole self awareness sort of goes. Is it possible that at that point it's actually the sort of self doubt or the the chitter chatter of the mind is sort of shut off?
1: Yeah, that's where that meditative angle comes from. It's you're just into doing something that you love and is all consuming, all absorbing. Otherwise you'd never spend those ten thousand hours doing something to get better at it. And meditation itself, which increasingly is being offered up as a solution for
0: mental health issues, is, is having a very similar effect, I'd imagine.
1: Yes. I mean, we shouldn't really have need for meditation um, if we were living perhaps as these glorified hunter gatherers. And as I've explained, there's a lot of advantages to how we live today. But you'd have a lot of time walking, sitting, thinking, gazing over meadows and pastures and meditating without really realizing it. But there is a necessity for it. I'm a a massive skeptic, but I can't deny the effectiveness and the success of meditation. And it's not just perception and self-reporting and qualitative studies. It's quantitative. You can measure it in the neurons that things are happening. People are broadening and building their, their networks. They're able to succeed. But there's a very Western thing about meditation. Now, the point of Buddhism is that we spend our lives chasing meaning and purpose and good emotions and running away from those that cause bad emotions. So we're constantly chasing, we're constantly running away, we're constantly trying to find that sweet spot and negate one thing and maximise the other. And it's bloody exhausting. So meditation is really about just forgetting all of that and just being in the moment. Now the Western aspect on meditation is that you will find answers inside, seek solace on the inside. It's not even that. We're too proactive. You've just got to empty the brain and then it functions a lot better. Um, So it's got a massive role to play, um, increasingly in schools as well, of course.
0: So a lot of your work goes back to these sort of evolutionary building blocks, as it were. Have you come across anything that points to why we have this predilection almost for negative thoughts and for this self-talk?
1: Yeah, if if you just think about it logically, um, and it took me about seven books to start to think logically on this, so it doesn't come that easily, but we do have this negativity bias. It's just into us so the more negative people would um, be more cautious and therefore less likely to die Um, you can take it on a on a global scale or on a micro scale you know if you hear a rustling in the bushes while you're sitting around the campfire all the optimists go oh it's nothing whereas the pessimists will go oh there might be a monster in there of some sort and uh, (laughs) they'd get up and walk away and then the monster comes out and you know grabs them And um, so the pessimists survived. But there's a good side. There's a flip side to this of being human is that the humans that cooperated and cared for others and had each other's backs, uh, they were more likely to survive as well. So it's not quite schizophrenia in us as a species, but we have this negativity bias, which we can try and train ourselves out of us because most of that negativity is bred into us due to a life or death situation, which isn't appropriate now. You know, blushing is to flush blood to your extremities and your muscles so that you can run away or fight or flight or freeze. It's completely inappropriate for most of the situations where we blush. <laughs> you know, if you start talking to somebody new at a bar and you either punch them or run away, it's kind of inappropriate now. So we need to learn to control these, these instinctive reactions. We
0: really do live in the most unnatural environment, really, don't we? I suppose that's where a lot of the problems come from. To drag this back to the work that you do, A lot of this understanding, of course, has really profound implications for the future of work and education. Can you expand on that?
1: I touched upon the dangers of telling all young people, do what you love. And, you know, I find myself thinking about it with my two toddlers. Mm -hmm. I don't care what they do as long as they love it and do it. But that does create a deficit syndrome. It it creates a a society and a workforce that might not want to do stuff. Also, schools are really badly designed for imparting knowledge to everybody it probably works for 60 percent of people but you're not building the virtues that we would have throughout history of uh, persistence and grit and determination and patience and understanding and community and communication and growth mindsets all of these things that actually when you look at the ernst and young reports the deloitte reports all of these reports on the future of work these are the human skills that are required to succeed going forward adaptability, psychological flexibility, is absolutely critical. And schools are starting to teach these more. Um, they're taking a, a strengths-led approach. They're taking a salutogenesis approach rather than a, a pathological approach. What are you are bad at? Right, let's focus on that instead of what you're good at. But it's interesting. It's kind of coming full circle to what your old grandma used to say in the old wives' tales of what was important in life, but now it's backed by data, evidence and science.
0: I guess meaningful work then just ticks... A whole load of boxes when it comes to deriving a sense of purpose and and meaning and thus well-being.
1: Yes, meaningful work's absolutely essential. If you look at any of the uh, most recent data in the last few years, people that are engaged and they've got a sense of purpose, and it doesn't have to be your purpose, but even a shared purpose in the workplace is fulfilling. Um, If you achieve something as a team, it's massive. And those teams that are engaged in that manner are much more uh, successful than teams that are motivated by league tables and only financial motivators. But I was having a chat with a friend, Bob Easton. So he's the the chairman for um, Accenture in Australia and New Zealand. And he said he was looking at some things and he worries that purpose is the next con, by which he means that people are just harnessing this. Oh, we've got these amazing values, this amazing purpose. Come with us on this journey. And there's a lack of authenticity and a feeling of manipulation about it. So there is that, coming back to the philosophers, you know, you need that altruism, you need that virtue about what you're trying to do. It makes
0: me think of when people tend to
1: retire early, they think that
0: on the other side of that is going to be all this time and everything's going to be great. And not actually realizing that a lot of their identity, their meaning was actually being derived from the work that, you know, they actually thought they were trying to get out of.
1: Yeah. And, and work is often nurtured or cultivated, particularly by the time you're at retirement age, around you and what you do well and what you're good at. And you take that away and you can replace it. And they love it. And like my dad is is like that. He's he's so happy, <laughs> but he's always been a gentleman that's happy with what he's got. Um, he's probably that, that post rationing generation and what have you and doesn't have as much as that sense of inadequacy that might pervade my brain. So um, in all aspects of my life. Retirement is, you need to feel you're contributing. And often work is the only community we've got left. Um, Our families are disparate. Our parents uh, have to work when we're small and growing up. We don't have our grandparents to take care of us or or do the babysitting. So we miss that. But what's interesting is that seminal work or book on the purpose of work and, and being employed and unemployed, it has five things that people said, this is why I work. And money wasn't in the top five across all of these people. And also, of those five things, four of them align exactly with the current definition of what well-being is, which is PERMA. And and, and so work provides an enormous 80% of your meaning in life, if you like, or, or your life satisfaction. So you can see why people do go back to work or try and build a sense of community and networking and friends once you retire otherwise it's a, a very swift path into depression.
0: Okay so, so if we agree that being employed helps to deliver a lot of well-being what about say the situation with someone that's unemployed or, or even
1: students? That's really the crux of my PhD is that you can see that well-being goes up markedly in people that are working And it goes down when people lose their jobs. In fact, there was a study where if somebody loses their job, it takes them five years, 5.1 years, to recover their previous set point of life satisfaction. If that same person's wife died, for example, uh, it took 4.9 years to overcome. And, And that was even if they got a job six months after being previously made redundant. So work's remarkably important. So the whole hypothesis I had... Is if well-being is so intrinsically linked with work, if you're unemployed and your well-being's gone down, what if we use all of these evidenced interventions to improve an individual's well-being? Would that improve their activation or their motivation or their general sense of purpose or desire to re-enter the workforce? And it turned out it did, Um, if we measure it by how many more people got a job after they've been through interventions that purport to improve resilience and, and well-being. By world leading levels, which is really what was the creation of my business, Isha House, was was really came out of what we found in the PhD studies.
0: And why should educators maybe care about about meaning and purpose? Does the current sort of conversation around skills and employability miss part of the point of education?
1: When you choose a vocational path, you think that's what you're doing for now and for life? but really the core is knowing what you're good at and finding that within that job and maximizing it, but then being able to apply it elsewhere. So I'll give you the example we had recently of um, an electrical apprenticeship, and they'd studied it, they'd got up to speed, and right at the very end, they'd completed it, got into the workforce, and their skills are out of date, you know, went fully into the workforce. And that's the issue right now, is that things are changing at a remarkable pace, Uh, a wonderful pace but we're out of date all the time so we need to learn the foundations but it's the psychological flexibility the growth mindset and the ability to adapt using what we know are our own core strengths that are the critical skills for a future workforce. You'd
0: mentioned that assessment before how do we effectively find the strengths in people?
1: Well, we can take um, academically validated strengths finder tests from Gallup or the VIA Institute. Or you can have a chat with someone. If you just say to somebody, what you are looking forward to in the next month? And they go, oh, I don't know. know, What are you looking forward to, Mark, in the next month?
0: Uh, I've got absolutely nothing to look forward to. I've got a little trip planned, actually. (laughs) Um, I've got a little trip Mm -hmm. planned.
1: Now, if I was to expand upon that, well, why are you looking forward to that trip?
0: Uh, literally, mostly, so I can genuinely spend some time with my wife and family., yep. and why is they not because they're not under two. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and And why is that a good thing?
0: I think it's just uh, I feel that that's when I'm at my most natural and when I'm most happy.
1: If that's the biggest thing you're looking forward to, and I know you lead a helter-skelter, crazy, amazing life of exceptional things. But if that's what you're looking forward to most in the next month is spending time with family, people would probably say, well, one of your greatest strengths is clearly love and and spending time and hope. And they indeed are your your top strengths. And I didn't need a 124 question survey to establish that. But it's important to know that. And people rarely think of themselves in terms of virtues and strengths. When was the last time you you said, oh, I'm bloody brilliant at this? People don't, often don't know it. When we do this with job seekers, we've had tens of thousands of job seekers in Australia and Britain go through this model and, and identify their own strengths. They're often more surprised about their strengths than their colleagues or the people around them or people that know them. They say, really? Love of learning is one of my great strengths? It's like, oh, God, you don't shut up asking questions. You know, the people around them know their strengths more inherently than they do. And we possess this naturally as kids. When you ask my child as a daycare, oh, what did you do today? Oh, I played with that boy that's really good at balancing on a beam. And it's like, oh, right, okay. They describe each other in terms of strengths, but we kind of lose this and blind this. So it's important to have that perspective. And and there's never been a real policy on a global scale or a micro change behavior program where it hasn't been successful because not... That you're focused on deficits and what you can't do, but you're focused on what you're great and what you can do and what motivates you. So then the barriers that you're overcoming become insignificant. You're focusing on the good stuff.
0: That's absolutely fascinating. Can we ask about yours? What are your strengths?
1: Love of learning, curiosity and social intelligence are the top three.
0: That absolutely comes through in what you do. Now I know you've also worked with some large firms, government departments, to deal with mental health issues in the workplace. What have been the findings in that work?
1: It has been interesting um, because you often get different opinions from individuals and then the work health and safety managers and then the executives but there have been some absolute commonalities through from wherever we're dealing with a school in the outback to a large government department in a metropolitan area. The key thing is that a boss's attitude cascades so if we went in to have a chat with a boss and they're all over the shop, they're frantic, oh my God, I'm so sorry I'm late, it's just been a crazy morning. Then the anxiety and stress that seems to pervade the entire department is everywhere. Um, But if we go in and see that same boss and I go, I'm so sorry I'm late, I had to sort something out, I'm not talking about you here, Mark, but but you are like this, you're amazing. Um, but I had to sort something out. It's all sorted now, so I'm with you. Let's talk about Then the whole department, the whole um, establishment organization reflects that. But the single greatest resource for well-being and resilience in the workplace that reduces absenteeism, improves productivity, is camaraderie um, and peer support, which is something that's eroded constantly. You know, in schools, the common rooms are being broken up. It might not be appropriate anymore, but that Friday afternoon after school beer that the teachers would go down and and have immortalised in the madness song, that's massive. But we also, to bring it back to the subject of this talk, so that peer support is important, the feeling that the employer's got your back, that they'll support you is, is massive as well. And one of the greatest things we've found in modern workplace that is eroding a sense of well-being everywhere is that a manager will tell somebody they're not up to scratch So you need to do this, this, and this to improve. That person will feel bullied, victimized. Maybe there's an element of that if the manager's never been trained in performance management. But then they'll take that manager to court for bullying and victimization. Then the manager's executives will say, well, this is going to be terrible publicity. It's going to take an enormous amount of time. We'll just pay them off. And we'll support you by paying them off so you don't have the stress of that dear manager. They paid a person off who goes off. But then the manager is living in absolute abject fear that if they tell anyone off to improve performance, if they tell anyone how to um, do their job better, they're bullying them. So then they stop doing that management. But then colleagues also kind of give up. Well, that person was a nightmare and they they got off and they've been going around saying, yeah, you know, I got a load of money out of this. I was right. So it absolutely erodes performance in the workplace. So there's an enormous amount of mental health support you can see there throughout there on, on loads of levels. That was a massive issue uh, that we came across in terms of the eroders and builders of well-being. Contextualised resilience training, you can teach resilience. It feels like you can't, you're born with it, but it is teachable. And we, we've got examples of hundreds of thousands of people going through this sort of training in, in military units, as well as in schools. And the need for soft skills is repeated or, as we prefer to call them now, human skills, is always more important. Mm.
0: Tons of leadership lessons in there. The word resilience has also maybe become a bit of a buzzword or grit, which I think is actually a bit of a shame because it really resonates with me. Can you just talk a bit more around some of these exercises that you use to how do you, in a practical sense, build resilience? You know, something, something that we, we can relate to.
1: Yeah, it feels so inherent and um, natural and either you got it or you ain't that it it seems ridiculous that you can teach it they are buzzwords but they're buzzwords because they're being used by people um, and they're getting results from them Uh, my PhD supervisor hates the term grit because it sold hundreds of thousands of books but there's some great content in there but she says my supervisor well it's just persistence it's just a regurgitation of persistence Positive psychology is almost a regurgitation of stoicism. There's very little new in the last 2,000 years, but you can teach it. So one of the most simple things we do with job seekers is something that's done throughout militaries and schools around the world is, all right, tell me what went well in the last 24 hours. You touched upon that negativity bias, which impacts upon absolutely everything you do, particularly if you're in an environment of embarrassment. Uh, or or feeling knocked back or learned helplessness in terms of long-term unemployment so everything you see around you is negative and you can train the brain to be more positive by recognizing what went well now I was very skeptical of this it sounds a pathetic exercise I don't know found a parking space this will be over in five minutes and uh, oh my wife cooked me my favorite apple crumble last night it's a ridiculous exercise, but you can you can actually see it. Brain patterns change. There's a broaden and build theory. People think less narrow-mindedly, and you can see your way out of problems. And that's one example of, say, the 32 most evidenced uh, interventions we use with job seekers.
0: Would you mind going through the rest of the 31? No,
1: I'm just <laughs>
0: <laughs> One thing that we think about as an employer at, uh, at ReadyTech is, interested to know how, how you think about this, is, is that really delicate balance of, good stress and bad stress in that you know as we were talking about before you know if it's easy then it's not worth doing but there's a tipping point where it becomes it negative that's my first and
1: opinion but to saying well-being. what went where well last year. so there is a difference between good stress and bad stress you stress is as stress builds and it's actually quite motivating it gives you a sense of achievement but once that tips over once that goes past the tipping point then you're into distress but it's like that with everything even your strengths if your strength is curiosity you tend to overplay strengths, and that can become nosiness. A lot of case managers and student support workers have empathy as a strength, but that can be overplayed, and it becomes sympathy, which makes people less proactive, the opposite of what they're trying to achieve. So it's all about balance, really, with these sorts of things, as we know, but also knowing your own limits.
0: And going back to that, the importance of meaning and, and purpose, and what can employers do better if they understand that?
1: Well, we've seen that shared purpose is is incredibly motivating and, and camaraderie is, is a protector against stress and, and um, distress at work. Um, so employers can capture that, but there is this danger of meaning and purpose at work being really superficial. So these are your values. This is the values of our business, but it really isn't. I think his name was Simon Walton, wasn't it? The guy that created Walmart, who always said... Uh, it's customer first, customer first. It's kind of, you know, everyone says that, but he actually sort of meant it and followed through right from the earliest beginnings and grew the business as a result. So, meaning and purpose can be harnessed, it can be more fulfilling, uh, but you've got to make sure it's authentic. Now, that's a really interesting lesson.
0: Let's go back to that technology thing, because you did pick up on that at the start, and um, just really interested in your thoughts as well. I'm sure you've looked into this, is, um, you know, in some ways, technology is. Is kind of connecting us and, and bringing us together but uh, potentially dividing us and and but also there's maybe more access to information so how does all that impact on well-being?
1: I think first of all we've got to accept that we ain't going to change it uh, we're not going to ban Facebook or access to phones so we've got to got to harness it as best we can and a lot of what we've been talking about however is is really about um, really ancient human principles of communication and community and purpose and and significance but you can measure a lot of this and make the human condition better by using data and artificial intelligence and machine learning and algorithms and which is something we've really embraced like we can understand a student's genuine intent to complete a course the minute they've signed up to a course and surprisingly about 40% on average, aren't 100% really committed to a course. There's something eroding away their likelihood of completing over the next two or three years. Now, do we let that person waste two or three years of their lives and become more and more disruptive and mess up the studying of those people around them? Or do we use this algorithm and this this prediction uh, to prescribe what we should say to that person? Hey, why are you doing this electrical course? Well, my dad told me to. Well, let's have a little chat and I'll help you with your dad. What is it that you really love? What do you really want to do? Where do you see this going? And actually, oh, well, the things you're describing, you could be great at electrical stuff. So do you want to give this a crack anyway? But can you see how there's that? It's often a false thing I hear um, at conferences saying, well, it's disruptive technology. It can humanize things. Uh, But really in education and employment, I'm seeing it come in and, and, and technology really is making a difference to people's lives and, and, and meaning that case managers and student support can be more human and really engage with someone straight away.
0: Now I'm going to take a bit of a risk and we are going to start to wrap this up. And one of the last things I wanted to ask you is um is about the meaning of life. And and the question is, isn't the meaning of life really about what's the point and about dealing with death really?
1: It is, because we can have a massive sense of purpose, a massive sense of achievement, but then we die, so what's the point? Um, and it is about that significance and then the transcendence, uh, which, again, in a secular world, we've lost a lot of. And I, I guess I don't have the answers because this really is the meaning. Um, if I did, I'd be the Messiah. Um, You're not the Messiah. You're a very naughty boy. <laughs> but Sorry, that was too easy. <laughs> <laughs> but I do know that we need a bit more time in ourselves, in our daily lives, to think about things and find our our purpose a bit more focus on it, find some meaning. But at the end of the day, really exactly the same as an ant that we might have just stepped over. It's about procreation, um, and it's about just surviving and, and ensuring our DNA continues in a better, safer, stronger way. That's what every tree, plant, bacteria, animal and human's trying to achieve. So for me it's having the time to think about things, know yourself a bit more, but then knowing what to do leave everywhere that you approach better than how you found it so that can be true of your life your family the person that just served you a cup of coffee everywhere you go try and leave people a bit happier try and leave the environment oh there's a bit of crap on the floor let's pick up that rubbish and um, it sounds pathetic but on a micro scale that that's really what what life's about that's where you find meaning
0: i love that philosophy do you know darren every time i find the meaning of life they change it
1: Boom boom. Boom, boom. <laughs>
0: Any philosophical jokes that you want to uh, no, finish up on? No, I'm spent. <laughs> so you've mentioned a few books there, actually. I'd quite like to, just to, to ask you this, is you know, we could talk forever about the, the biggest questions of humanity. But for people that want to know more about the psychology behind all this and, and on the science behind it, where would you direct them? Yeah, you know, what what's good reading for you?
1: Yeah, if I was to be really efficient with time and choose maybe four Key sources. Uh, it'd be anything by Michael steger at that Colorado State University. You don't have to read a book. There's loads of TED talks and YouTube stuff by Michael. Then David Brooks. Um, he wrote a book on the social animal. Harari's book on Sapiens um, is massive. Loved that. Yeah,
0: it's fascinating book.
1: And then um, I suppose Seligman's bringing a lot of work of a lot of psychologists together in in flourishing. Um, and, and brings a lot of Chick Csikszentmihalyi's work on flow together because I'm assuming that reading anything by Plato and Aristotle might be a bit too tedious. can be a little bit heavy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and uh, and what's next for you and Isha House? Uh, where
1: are you uh, going to focus in the future of work? Well, most people that have learned psychology and, and worked in this field make a massive difference with individuals, with students, with kids they know are suffering with the job seekers uh, that they might work with or members of their family, which is really what motivated me and got me me started. It was an issue with my sister. But I think there's so much good stuff here that we've got to work with ministers, secretaries of state to improve the lot, the focus, the purpose and the enjoyment in life and the contribution as a citizen of job seekers and students help them with their completion. So it's really doing this on a macro scale and then, working with other groups of employment service providers, fe colleges, um, so that they can work with it uh, with individuals and help everyone realize their potential a trite saying that's everywhere, but we can truly achieve it with what we know now.
0: Any final insane predictions for the future of work
1: well one when one sort of extrapolates where we are at the moment, it seems that we can work less and less and generate more income the more machines and algorithms work for us but there've been experiments with you know how do we pay for things and live there's been experiments with basic income in the Netherlands Switzerland they've cancelled it in Finland because there's more procrastination we're terrible procrastinators that's why death's a good thing because otherwise it's always we'll do something tomorrow I can't believe I've actually said death's a good thing you and I are not going to die though are we (laughs) never immortal we're immortalized by this podcast So there's more working from home, but actually, if you look at Google and Silicon Valley, there's strength in people coming into an office and working together and missing that community because you don't find it as much with family and friends anymore because you're so desperate. You know, how many people live in the same village that they used to live in where they they were born? So I guess my great hope is that whatever the technologies provide and the modern world is we've got more time to prioritise and spend it with our families and spend it with people that matter and people of a like mind, because that will make us happier overall anyway. Do you know what, Darren? I'm really glad
0: you took those two years off (laughs) to do all that reading. (laughs) And thank you so much for the fascinating conversation. Thanks for your insatiable curiosity and uh, for your genuine care for humanity. Really enjoyed the discussion. Thanks, Val. And thank you very much for listening. If you want to hear more from Worked, find us on Spotify or visit readytech.com.au. Keep tuning in.